I want to get started, but I already put it in the comments. I want to start out by saying no spoilers, please. So everyone's at different uh, parts of the season. Some people are caught up. Some people are not caught up. I really want to try, if we can, to really focus on uh, episode two rather than looking ahead. I know it's tempting. This is the first time that I've done Joan's Take on the Chosen while the season's been unfolding, and it was a hard decision to make about whether or not to wait until the season was over. But we are going to launch into episode two and really just try to concentrate on episode two. So that's my first note is if you're in the chat, if you're watching on YouTube, if you can be careful not to throw spoilers out, I know it's hard to figure out what happened in what episode, but I'm going to try my best to keep us. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, obviously you don't have to worry about that. You can you know, yell out loud in your car, spoilers to your heart's content. We do have a lot of listeners on the podcast. You know, the podcast came after the YouTube lives. I did the YouTube lives for a, a while before one of my friends asked if I could strip the audio and put it up as a podcast. I never really intended podcasts to be the main medium, but I got a note today that I am ranked on this podcast 178th in the United Kingdom for Christian podcasts. So I got a kick out of that. Um, it's I, I don't really know if that means I'm popular or not, but I don't know how many Christian podcasts there are in the UK. Um, so let's go ahead and get started as we look at episode two of season three. Again, no spoilers. Um, and I also wanted to note in the last episode when we talked about the Our Father, I received a lot of great comments and corrections I had forgotten that Jesus taught them the Our Father in the previous season. And so I'm grateful for everybody who pointed out that he had taught the apostles the Our Father. I had forgotten that point. So thanks for those people who who corrected me on that. That was good to know. So when we look at episode two, in some ways, it's not a, a huge packed episode the way maybe some of the later episodes will be. But it's clear that both episode one and episode two are really setting up a lot of storylines that will come to fruition towards the end of the season or in the middle of the season. Again, no spoilers. But when we open, the scene opens. So we ended with Matthew getting ready to go talk to his father. That's how episode one ended. He knocked on the door and his father greeted him. And we we had an indication by him calling him son that this was going to be a pretty good meeting, better than maybe Matthew was expecting. We open episode two with Capernaum, and I want to take some moments to really talk about Capernaum. You know, we see Capernaum, and I give them, immediately I give them kudos for the CGI background of the landscape behind what we see in Capernaum. They really nailed it. They really nailed that hillside. If you've you've been to the Holy Land, um, you have the Sea of Galilee. And then you have Capernaum built on right on the Sea of Galilee. So it's going to be on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And then you have this kind of hillside because around Capernaum, that's where you're going to find places like Tabga, where the multiplication of the loaves and fishes happened. That's where you're going to find the hillside of the Mount of Beatitudes. So I thought the behind Capernaum, the CGI, they really nailed it. For me, I had issues with, um, it looked a little bit more Roman than Capernaum would have been. And... If you notice later in the episode, Atticus, when he's talking to Simon Z, he actually calls Capernaum a Roman town, which it wasn't. It was the village of Nahum. Um, so it was named after the prophet Nahum. 
Um, that's what it means in, in Hebrew. It was settled in the second century under the Hasmonean dynasty. So the Hasmoneans, when they're in charge, um, you know, they're they're uh, for briefly, very briefly, the Holy Land is not under um, foreign occupation when it's under after the Maccabean revolt. It's under the Hasmonean dynasty. And this is when Capernaum would have been settled. And while we found in excavation, so they've excavated Capernaum, you can go today and walk around the excavations. They there's a lot they haven't excavated in Capernaum. But um, they've not found any Roman buildings. They found some Roman buildings nearby, but nothing inside the town. In case, in, in fact, excavations in Capernaum haven't revealed any archaeological trace of any Gentile presence in Capernaum. So there's no Roman art. There's no Greek inscriptions. There's no pig bones. There's no indication that any Gentiles lived in Capernaum. So I thought personally the depiction of Capernaum looked a little Roman to me, and I don't know why they had Atticus describe it as a Roman town, because it, it was not. If anything, it was a pretty conservatively Jewish town. It's interesting, Herod Antipas at the second century, um, second century BC, right? Was he pretty No, no, sorry. Herod Antipas at this time um, had built his capital on the western side of um, the Sea of Galilee, and he named it Tiberias after the emperor. And Jews didn't move there for a number of reasons, um, but partly because there was kind of this Roman element. There were there were tombs excavated at the time when they were building the city. They found tombs there, which would have made it unclean for living. Herod Antipas builds um, his palace, and he covers it with statues, which was against the Jewish religious laws. So the people that lived there were not conservative Jews. They were people who couldn't afford to live anywhere else. Um, they were soldiers. They were people that did not have religious ties. And note, we never see Jesus going to Tiberias. Um, the only time we have Tiberias even mentioned is when John calls the Sea of Galilee the Sea of Tiberias. So it's interesting. I, I don't know why they depicted it that way. Um, would there have been a Roman presence there with all the soldiers? Probably not. So there's some conflicting evidence of where the garrison of soldiers would have been located. Most um, now modern day excavations have, there are, there is a Roman, um, there is evidence of Roman settlement, possibly this garrison, but it would have been east of the city. It was found east of the city. Um, so the military presence in Capernaum actually did not begin until after the Jewish revolt. So we're looking at like 66 AD. At the time of Jesus, the Romans probably would have been stationed east of the city near the border. So the Capernaum is near the border of the two territories. So remember Herod divides his territories up with all his sons. And so Capernaum is located in the territory of Herod Antipas. And then um, there's just east of the city, um, very close to Capernaum actually, is the border with the territory of Philip. So Herod's other son. And so what's important about Capernaum is that it's strategically located. So it's possible the soldiers would have been around that border area. Um, and so, but we do know that there was a centurion, right? And like Christy says, we know that there has to be a centurion. No spoiler. We know that Gaius has to be around, right? And so um, it's interesting, even when I've done some research on that scene of the centurion. We know that the centurion, for example, built the synagogue in Capernaum. We know there's a centurion that was friendly. So it's possible he would have been stationed east. It's possible he was retired. We don't actually know. 
Um, Jackie says, how about Caesarea? So you're probably thinking of Caesarea Maritima, which Maritina, Caesarea by the sea, which oftentimes when you go visit the Holy Land, you go visit that often at the beginning of your trip because it's near Tel Aviv. So it's interesting. So I, I said that Capernaum was a, um, a strategic place. So why was it strategic? So while it's not Herod Antipas's capital, that's in Tiberias, it is Jesus's capital. So Jesus makes uh, Capernaum his home, right? He leaves Nazareth and settles in Capernaum. We have him probably living with Peter and Peter's mother-in-law. That's the most likely. So I'm not talking about the chosen here. I'm talking about um, historical evidence. Why is Jesus' capital Capernaum? It is a very strategic place because it's on a major trade route. It's just off a major trade route, I should say. So it, it remains a conservative Gentile or a conservative Jewish town, but it's very close to a road called the Via Maris. And the Via Maris runs from Damascus in Syria, right? Damascus to the north, down to Egypt. And the Via Maris was a major trade route. So there would have been people passing by Capernaum. There's also a route um, that goes to Caesarea Maritima. So it would have gone towards Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea on the field, on the sea. It's really interesting. So this means Caesarea not only is connected to Damascus, it's, or sorry, Capernaum not only is, is connected to Damascus, it's connected to Egypt, it's connected to Rome. How? Well, Caesarea on the sea was the major port to Rome. And at the time of Jesus, we actually have reports of Romans enjoying a delicacy called tilapia Galilee. So the Romans would enjoy this delicacy of fish, tilapia, that was actually caught in the Sea of Galilee. So Capernaum becomes kind of this um, center of, even though it remains a, it's a small Jewish city. It's only about 1,500 people. Um, by So it's bigger than Nazareth, but it's not huge. To compare, um, the largest city on the western side of the Sea of Galilee would have been Migdal or Magdala. Magdala, we're looking at about 12,000 people. And there was actually um, one of the, 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 we see in Magdala this, um, this kind of trade and this preservation of fish. Why? Um, because it would have been lucrative to figure out how to preserve the fish to get it to Rome, where it was a, a, a delicacy. I don't know if anybody finds this interesting, but I find this very uh, interesting. Yes, so Nicodemus brags about the fish from Capernaum. It was known, this tilapia, that actually would have in the winter gone up to that part, gone up to Capernaum. Um, this tilapia was well known, even in Rome, and you can have it to this day. When you go, you can go and eat dinner at Tabga and have Peter's fish. I should have, I should show you a picture of me kissing Peter's fish, but you to this day can eat the tilapia of the Holy Land. Okay, so all that to say, it makes sense why Jesus makes his capital Capernaum. Why? Because he is going to use everything possible to spread the gospel, just like he sends Peter eventually, right? Peter goes to Rome. Why? Because Roman roads are going to be used to spread the gospel. It makes sense for Jesus to be in this place where he can stay ritually clean, he can stay, he can live amongst Jews but he's still connected to the outside world, okay? So um, that's all I'm going to say about Capernaum, but I think they they nail really the geography behind the city. Okay, uh, the shanty town that springs up, I've never thought about that. I never thought about 
what do we do with these people who follow Jesus? But it makes sense when you think of the feeding of the 5,000 and how these people have chased him around the Sea of Galilee, right? It basically says that in the scriptures, right? During In John 6, we have the people, like they have to feed all these people and then they chase him around over to Capernaum where then he delivers the bread of life discourse. So it's all these little things that I can appreciate about the chosen because we read these sentences and we don't think about what they mean. So we have this shanty town, which I think is a really interesting development. And it makes sense to me that these people are following Christ. We have a little hint in this opening scene about Gaius. Notice that Atticus try, is going to basically blackmails him, right? Like you have to take this to Quintus. And there's hints about Gaius's background, which is really intriguing. So what don't we know about Gaius? Uh, Quintus, or sorry, Atticus hints that there's murder in his background, right? So I, I'm excited to find out more about Gaius because there's a lot here. He's He's been one of my favorite characters from the very first season, and he continues to be one of my favorite characters. So let's turn to Matthew. So the next big character development, and I think um, either, I think Jackie said this, this season is good for character development, and it has. These two episodes are really good for character development. So we have Matthew's reconciliation with his father. Um, a few things, a lot of people have noted it's one of their favorite scenes. There's a lot kind of to unpack here. At the same time, I think it's fairly straightforward. Matthew's apology is so Matthew, right? It's just so Matthew he kind of stumbles over trying to figure out how to apologize, how to ask for forgiveness. He doesn't understand metaphor, uh, but he's getting to know metaphor, right? Didn't notice he said that, like, I'm getting used to metaphors. One thing I want to pull out from this whole, uh, there's two things I want to pull out, well, two themes, because I think there's a lot we can pull out from Matthew's apology. Number one, he mentioned that he was comfortable, that he never felt, he, he was, he didn't understand himself. He knew he was different. And so he sought refuge. I'm putting words in his mouth. He sought refuge in making himself comfortable. And so he liked being rich. He liked eating well. He liked being comfortable. And I think a lot of us can relate to this. And we seek, and we're, when we feel out of place, when we feel like we don't belong, you know, at least we can be comfortable. At least we can find pleasure in the, in, you know, you can see that Matthew would go someplace where he was accepted, already probably feeling rejected, if he does have autism, feeling rejected by his Jewish brothers and sisters, possibly, not necessarily by the Jews, but by, as a, as a high schooler, right, by his peers, he then goes and at least he's going to find success. What I want to pull out is that he says he was comfortable. Isn't it interesting that he comes to know himself when he's uncomfortable? So, he's coming to know who he really is when he's stripping himself of his riches and of his good food and of his nice house and of his clothes and of his shoes. Right. So it's really in, in finding um, he's finding himself when he's stripping himself of those comforts. And I think that's a fat, a good lesson for us. He also, before when he was, when he was intrigued by Jesus, do you remember in the first season when he's seeing things that don't make sense to him, he's hearing things that don't make sense to him and he's uncomfortable by that. And he begins this search. And so how does Matthew come to really know who he is? He always feels like an outcast. He always feels different. He comes to know who he is in Christ Jesus, of course, but it's in that discomfort, whether it's a, a spiritual discomfort or a physical discomfort or an emotional discomfort that 
that that's when Matthew finds himself and that's when Matthew comes to know who he is. I don't know if that's what the writers were saying, but that's what I really pulled out of that little discourse. Um, Oh, bye, Jay. Thanks for joining us. I totally understand about the slow connection. And so just for Jay and for everyone else, it'll be on YouTube later. It'll also be on Apple Podcasts and Spotify recorded. So um, if it's easier to get it there. But I'm really glad you joined us from Africa, um, from Texas via Africa, by the by the looks of your emotic, uh, avatar. So that's kind of what I, I got from Matthew. I agree that um, he there's a physical change in him. Did you notice with his handkerchief that he didn't need it anymore? To me, it reminded me of Linus's blanket in, um, in the Peanuts Christmas story. So do you remember in the C- Peanuts Christmas special, it's when, P- it's when Linus is delivering the gospel. It's when he is confident in, his, in Christ Jesus, right, in the delivery of the gospel he drops his blanket and it's a really subtle, it's a really subtle note. And that's what I thought of when Matthew doesn't need the handkerchief. So he is finding himself in Christ. He is finding his identity in Christ. And again, it's in that discomfort then that he searches. And I think so often our world is so comfortable. We've made ourselves comfortable that we aren't searching and we miss Jesus Christ because we have filled that hole in our souls with other things. And sometimes we need to make, make, we need to make that hole known so that we fill that hole with Jesus Christ. That's why we do things like fast. Um, that's why we have things like Lent, because we need to make room in our hearts to be filled with Jesus Christ. The other thing I want to pull out from Matthew and that scene is that I think it's important that his dad apologized as well, um, that Abba apologized. So often when we're hurt, we think there's only one person who has been hurt and only one person who's done the hurting. I think it would be very easy to think that Matthew hurt his father and that he was the only one that needed to apologize and 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 seek forgiveness. But there's never just one offender. In any in any argument, in any hurt, in any harm, in any even in any abuse. Um, we tend to draw a thick line between those who harm and those who are harmed, but the world, it's not that easy. Um, wounded people wound. And I think it's important that we need to remember there's never just one offender. And so I thought, I think it's, I thought it was very important that his father seek his forgiveness as well. I thought that was a really, really important point. So moving on to our Gaius Atticus uh, uh, Quintus scene, again, a lot of the storylines in this episode are just setting up future storylines. So we have the sewer well storyline briefly set up that there's something wrong with the water in the city that will play in later, of course, in the season. A couple lines I just wanted to pull out that he, they have to tell, they have to tell uh, Quintus about the, the shanty town. And he says, what are they, they pilgrims to what? And I really loved this. It, it was subtle, not to what, but to whom. That, it was very subtle, but that's a, um, it's important. And you really think about pilgrimage. The, to, the pil- to the Jews, pilgrim, pilgrimage was very important. There were certain pilgrimage feasts where you had to go up to Jerusalem, right? You had to go up to Jerusalem Men had to go up to Jerusalem three times a year for the pilgrim feasts. There were certain psalms that you would sing on your way up. So many, 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 many of the psalms 
are pilgrimage psalms. They were sung on pilgrimage on the way to Jerusalem. And so it's a, it's a, it's a small line, but I think it's a hint at what's to come. Pretty soon, the pilgrimage will not be to the old temple. The pilgrimage will be to the new temple, right? The pilgrimage will not be to the old Jerusalem. The pilgrimage will be to the new Jerusalem. And so um, Psalm 122, it's one of my favorite Psalms after going to Jerusalem, being in Jerusalem. 122 is a really great image of, is a really good example of a pilgrimage Psalm. And now we would see it as going to the altar of God at mass. And so pilgrims to what, not to what, but to whom? Of course, we still make pilgrimages. We make pilgrimages to, to Rome and to the Holy Land and to Compostello and to Walsingham and all to Lourdes, to all these ancient pilgrimage sites. But I thought that was a really interesting little, like, ultimately, even when we're making these other pilgrimages, whether we're going to Rome or to the Holy Land, we're making a pilgrimage to Christ. And our entire life is a pilgrimage to Christ. I gave a whole talk, life is a, is a pilgrimage. Um, and that's... Our, the idea of pilgrimage is based on the fact that our entire life is a pilgrimage and a Christian pilgrimage um, is one of constant renewal and constant conversion in our lives. It's one of my favorite talks to give, but that line was a good one. Notice that Gaius lies to Quintus about the sermon. It sounded like any other sermon. So he's lying to Gaius about the sermon and Atticus, Atticus is joining him in that lie, right? It's just about Jewish stuff. Uh, I, I, again, no spoilers, but it seems that they might have different reasons to lie, right? Have they both become sympathetic to the gospel? I definitely think Gaius is showing us sympathy towards the gospel. One of my friends thinks that Gaius was converted at the, on the spot at, Ma, at the Mount of Olives, or at the, sorry, at the Mount of Beatitudes. I kind of like that. Um, so have they become sympathetic to, to the gospel? Maybe Atticus just doesn't like Quintus and is setting him up to fail. We have some, you know, we know that those two don't really get along. That interesting, like you think about your future. Atticus is kind of poking him. I'm going to go see Pilate. All of this setting up for future storylines. It's really important. But both of them outright lie to Quintus, which doesn't seem to be in their favor. But especially if there's going to be more trouble in the shanty town. But it's interesting that they both um, hide what the sermon was really about and that the sermon was revolutionary. Back to my previous point, Christy says about the history of Capernaum, Quintus's character and plotline is not historical. So I don't, what I've read thus far, there are some sites online that will say that there was a Roman garrison in Capernaum. Most of the things I've read say, no, there was not a Roman garrison right in Capernaum and that Capernaum was not ruled in that way by the Romans. Now, I think in some ways they have to take some liberty to show this Roman growing discontent with Jesus. And so there has to be this presence of Rome in some ways, I think, to drive their storyline. But from what I can tell, one source said that the garrison of soldiers in this area wasn't even Romans, but it was like mercenaries. So, um, but even, I mean, yeah, so I, I don't know. I ha I mean, from what I've, and I would highly recommend this book. Um, oh, there's the author. Sorry. Um, this is an excellent, excellent, excellent work. Jesus. Sorry. For those of you on Spotify, you're like, what are you recommending? 
Um, Jesus of Nazareth by Michael Hesman. Hesman, Hesman. My German's not what it used to be. Um, by Mike. So it's H E S E M A N N. H E S E M A N N. Jesus of Nazareth. Archaeologists retracing the footsteps of Christ. Excellent work. And I've gotten a lot of my archaeological information from him. So this is a really good intro to Rome about the importance of order. So the Roman Empire did, they, they wanted order. This is how they expanded to such an extent at this time, because they were orderly. They did anything they could to prevent uprising so they would not use force. Um, of course, they used force when necessary, which is why they expanded as well. So, but Rome wanted order. They didn't want these upstarts, you know, causing trouble. And so this is a really good introduction to kind of the way the Roman Empire worked in these little colonies. So let's concentrate now on the apostles. So we have, I'm going to spend the rest of the time, um, we get Gaius a little bit at the very end, but the rest of the time, let's talk about the apostles. Um, first of all, let's talk about Zebedee. So, um, you know, Zebedee, I thought the whole olive oil business is interesting. I'm, I'm anxious to see where this all goes. You know, you don't really think like, what's Zebedee going to do after, you know, this is once again, another good example of, we read the gospels, his sons leave the fishing business. What happens to Zebedee, right? And so it's an interesting kind of dealt, you know, look at that. Um, it, interesting enough, due to the rock of Capernaum. So Capernaum, if you go there, that whole area around the Sea of Galilee has this basalt rock. Um, it's dark. It's black. Especially if you're in Tiberias, you'll notice all the the churches, all the, the buildings have this nice, awesome, black, dark gray stone. So because of the stone that was found, Capernaum was known for their olive presses and their grain grinders because of the stone. So it's kind of fun that he has an olive press. So I, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. Hint, hint, it might lead to some good parables, right? We need a, we need a vineyard, we need a vineyard owner for some parables, don't we? And the only other thing I want to say is I want an emergency stash pocket pocket to put my raisins in. I love that, that he wants, that John wants an emergency stash pocket. Peter, we talked about Peter a little bit last time and I vented about the family planning line. Um, I don't, this conversation is obviously setting up future storylines. I don't know why Peter tells her he'll always be here. He's like, I'll always be here. No, you won't. Um, I don't know whether he's just, I mean, Jesus says you have to give up everything and is this setting up the fact that Peter's going to have to give up everything? I know it's setting up other storylines, but Jesus thinks, oh, we're staying because Jesus has work to do. Peter says, I think we're staying because Jesus has work to do. Once again, Peter doesn't really know the plan. And yeah, I've already shared my thoughts about this conversation and family planning. I know it's to set future storylines up, but they needed to find a different way to do it. Um, for Peter to say something like that was just not Jewish. Uh, no Jewish man would get married before he was ready to start a family because marriage meant family. So I just think it's anachronistic. It's a it's a modern conversation that they wouldn't have ever practiced any form of family planning. So unless he just means we're going to try, but they never not would have tried because um, Jewish ritual, like Jewish purity laws, um, which we're talking a lot about, um, Jewish purity laws were set up that 
babies happened. That's all I'll say, right? Um, God wanted babies to come from marriage and that's why women are unclean at certain times. So um, anyway, that's, um, yeah, it's just interesting, that conversation. Um, we'll find out the backstory about Tamar soon enough, but we have that whole exchange with her jewelry. I don't know. Um, I don't know what to think about Tamar. I don't know if we don't have any indication that Gentiles followed Jesus to this extent. Um, you know, Jesus comes first during his public ministry for the Jews and later, you know, he's always open to Gentiles. He's preaching to Gentiles. He goes to Gentile cities. He preaches the gospel to Gentiles, but we don't have any indication as far as I know, if somebody can think of something, put it in the chat, but that a Gentile would follow him this closely. And so I don't know whether Tamar would be staying with Mary and Rama. It seems odd to me that a Gentile would, um, because she would be making them unclean to a certain extent. So I, that's just, I, I can't wrap my mind around that. That's a struggle. That's a character. Um, and Christy agrees. It's a character she struggles to understand. So we'll see what comes of that. Um, but here we have the great episode, the great scene, I should say, of the calling of the 12. I really love this scene. It's my second favorite scene in this episode. The, you know, Jesus says like, you know, we're going to have an army, not yet. Right. Um, and, but these people are in need of rescue. And I love that. That's a very messianic theme that we're in need of rescue. The Messiah comes to rescue his sheep. So that was a great, like these people are in need of rescue. We'll see that again. Jesus then calls the 12, uh, the Greek word that he would have used, but he wouldn't have used because he didn't, he wasn't speaking Greek at this moment. He spoke Greek probably, but apostolos to be sent. So it's funny when they're like, I don't mind. I mean, that's not the Aramaic. It's not the Aramaic meaning, but he says, you know, I'm going to send you out. And they're like, you're sending us. And as if they're all speaking Greek. Um, but I let that slide because I love the fact that they're catechizing, that that's what apostolos means. So when we use the word apostle, apostle, it means one who is sent. And so then he sends them. He actually sends them out. And this is a perfect example of a passage I think we overlook in scripture. We read it and it's there in Mark 6. It's there in Matthew. But we are we don't think about what it would have looked like. We don't think about how it would have happened. So I really love that Dallas shows in this episode and in the next what this would have looked like for them to go out, to go out, um, send them out two by two, right, with these instructions. These guys aren't ready. This is early on in the ministry. I mean, if we think of Mark 6, that's early on. But I love it, and I love how shocked they are. I love thinking about what it would have looked like. I just really like this scene. He says, you know, someday you'll have the authority all the time. You think of after their ordination, after his resurrection in the upper room, he's going to give them the authority to forgive sins at the end at the resurrection when he breathes on them. And so, um, but you're going to have it now because I'm giving it to you now for you to go out. And when Nathaniel says, did I miss a ceremony? I love, I love the scene. I love how real it is. I love how real these guys are. And they say like, I don't feel any different. You don't need to feel anything, Jesus says. That's really, really good because so often, whether it's in our prayer life or whether it's in our mission, whether it's in our vocation, we want to feel differently, right? You want to feel like, you know, you want to wake up the day after you're married and feel like something happened. 
and you might not, you might not feel like you made vows, right? You want to, you want to have this great moment of prayer and wake up and realize, oh, I had this great moment of prayer and I feel differently. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes we feel differently. Sometimes we can feel our mission. Sometimes we can feel what the Lord is doing in our lives. Sometimes we can feel zeal for the gospel. Sometimes we can't. And we still have to go do it, regardless of how we feel. Moms, if you feel like a mom today, great. If you don't, you still got to do it. Priests, if you feel like a priest today, great. If you don't, you still got to do it. I have to feel my work? No, I just have to preach the gospel. And um, it's it, it you, you don't need to feel any different because he's using you and he's using weak vessels. And we're going to get to the whole idea of an earthen vessel. But he's in you doing the work. He's in you for the mission. He's in you for the grace. So I really, I really love this, this idea. Um, teachers. Yes, Christy. Excellent example. You might not feel like a teacher. You know, might not feel like teaching. You might not feel like a teacher. You graduate with your little degree and you're like, yay, now I can go teach. And you're like, but I don't feel any different. Right. I shouldn't said little degree. That sounded really like demeaning. I'm sorry. You graduate with your degree. You pass your, you know, you think of doctors passing their boards and teachers passing your licenses. Like you still feel the same, but you go do it because he's doing it through you. If I needed qualified leaders, he wouldn't have picked them. And I, I like that it's John who says, um, we're not qualified. You know, John's the one who says like, we're not qualified for this. And I love that it's John because what I feel one of the big themes of one John one is John at the beginning saying why he's qualified to preach this gospel because he saw and he heard and he experienced and now he proclaims. And you think of John nineteen thirty five when he's standing at the foot of the cross and he writes like, I'm a eyewitness and I'm saying this so that you might believe. Why is John qualified? Because he was there, because he experienced, because he knew the love of God. And now he's qualified to pass that love on. And so that when he's, when John was the one who said, we're not qualified, I thought, yeah, that's the point. You're not qualified, but you're, you're the Christ is qualifying you. Christ is sending you. You are going to experience these things. You are going to see these things. You are going to eat with him. You are going to love him. You are going to know him. You are going to see his word. You're going to be loved by him. And that's what makes you qualified. Um, Christy points out the great slogan, Jesus is not called qualified, but he qualifies the called. And that's what we have right here, right? I just love the realness of this scene. Um, when they told Judas he had heard the best sermon, right? Um, some of it's overdone, but I, I really love that they are guys just real and they are facing the prospect of death and it's getting real when they realize that, when they realize they're facing the cross, you know, when he says you'll follow in my footsteps, he's not hiding the cross from them. They're just not ready for all of it right now. And I loved how emotional Jonathan got in this scene. It became very real that there are dark days ahead. They aren't ready for it now. And I thought it was a really powerful portrayal of what they're facing when they go out. The women are going to help financially. This is straight from the gospel, that the women are the ones who help support the mission. So I liked that. The idea of the reliance on God. Why aren't they taking more on their journey? Because they're, they need to rely on God. And I loved how he said that's necessary for following and leading. I think so often we think reliance on God is only necessary for those of us who are following and that the leaders can rely on themselves or the leaders rely on budgets or the re leaders rely on strategic plans or the leaders rely, right? 
Um, all of us rely on God. And that's a lesson they need to learn as leaders. Right? So they're going to learn it as followers so that they are also reliant on God as leaders. I loved, 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 loved that, that little business sense that, that he gives them. I've always wondered why Judas had the money bags when Matthew was a tax collector. Um, we find in the Gospels, Ju- Judas, of course, is in charge of the money bags. And he's the one that wants that, you know, when the when he wants to sell the ointment, you know, for for lots of money and give it to the poor instead of using it on Jesus. And that's because he used to we find out he's going to steal from the money bag. That's scriptural. I've always wondered, wow, why would you pick Judas to keep the money bag when you have a tax collector around? And I really loved how they explained it. Um, we don't know why that's why, you know, we don't know that's why, but I think that's a, a valid explanation that Matthew doesn't feel comfortable with that um, going into that, that past, into that, that um, past life. Um, so he sends them out two by two. I wrote down all the pairings. So if you have any questions and you, you need to remember who is paired with who, I wrote down the pairings and some of the pairings were very interesting. I love the other line, the last line before we get to the best scene. I think the best scene of the episode, but the last line of this that I will pull out is when he says, none of you are what you were. Um, all of you are, are, you know, you're all someone new. And it's not just that Simon the Zealot's no longer a zealot and Matthew's no longer a tax collector. When he says that he looks at Peter and I don't know why he looks at Peter, maybe just because he's talking to Peter at the time, right? But it makes me think that, you know, they are all asked to give up everything. And I don't know how the directors are going to deal with Peter giving up everything. Um, and it's hard. The whole Eden storyline is really difficult. And, but Peter's called to give up everything too. And, and it's just going to be interesting. He's, he's not who he once was. Now, I don't believe that Jesus would ever ask a man to leave his wife for him. That's not the way Jesus would have asked the apostles, but their life is going to be different. And their life is not their own. And it's it's tricky. It's a tricky theme. It's a tricky storyline. And we're going to see how they they deal with it. Um, oh, and then we have Rayma. I've said in the last episode, I'm not crazy about the Rayma Th- Thomas storyline. And so I didn't like that Rayma came to find Thomas. I thought that wasn't in character. I don't think a woman of that time would do that, would come find Thomas, would admit that he knew, she knew he was going to ask her father for her hand. And I don't like the fact that she's not obeying Jesus, that she's not staying in Capernaum. You know, Jesus said the women would stay in Capernaum and now she's decided she's going home. And that might be fine for Jesus, but that didn't sit well with me. So my favorite scene, um, we're going to wrap up in a second here, but I think this is just the apex. This is just the climax of the episode. This scene with little James, there's so much, there's so much to say, um, but this treatment of why God allows suffering, why God allows certain people to suffer and not others, why certain people are healed and not all. I think this is the closest they can get to unpacking what redemptive suffering is. This is an outstanding explanation for what we do with our suffering, why God allows us to suffer. You know, as as Catholics, we're actually the, I think, the only people with the answer to suffering. And that is that we believe in redemptive suffering. We believe that you can unite your suffering with Christ on the cross. And, and when you unite your suffering with Christ on the cross, it becomes redemptive. It becomes salvific. It um, changes the world, just like Christ's suffering changed the world. And there aren't 
that is one of the great, the mystery of suffering, the mystery of evil is the great, the greatest mystery I think out there. And the way they unpacked this, um, not necessarily perfectly with redemptive suffering, partly because the cross hasn't happened, I suppose, but I thought it was phenomenal. Um, you know, why haven't, why hasn't he healed James? Because he trusts him. He trusts him to suffer well. He trusts him to love God in his suffering. He trusts him in this suffering. And how many people we know, countless people, have been entrusted with great burdens and great sufferings, physical, emotional, spiritual. And to think of it as God entrusting us because with the suffering because he can trust us to continue to praise him. Not everybody can praise him in the suffering. But little James can. And he says, teach people to praise me in suffering. <laughs> Show people how to suffer. Show them to hope for heaven. At the beginning, James says, you know, he can't speak well. He can't speak. And Jesus says, slow to speak is a good quality. And I think this may be a reference to the letter of St. James. Um, we don't know if little James wrote the letter to St. James. There's a, there's a disagreement about whether or not it was him or another James that was upstand, out, that was um, prominent in the Jerusalem community. But the let in the letter of James, he speaks about the power of the tongue. And so when he said that about speaking, I thought, is that a reference to James? And then if you read the letter of James at the very beginning, he talks about the value of trial and the value of suffering. Now it might not be written by little James, but I think it's an important theme and an important connection. And I just, I think for anyone suffering to find consolation in this, you know, James says like, it's easy to say I'm fearfully made, but it doesn't make it easier. And how real that is when we pray, you know, it's easy to say the words of the prayers. It's easier to say thy will be done. It's hard to live that. It's hard to live that. But Jesus says, you are going to do more for me. So many people need healing to believe. So who are we? Are we going to find strength because of our weaknesses? It's totally St. Paul, right? This little discourse is St. Paul, that there is power in weakness. That mystery, that paradox of the Christian faith. But that's what James is called to walk forward in faith and believe. We expect our leaders to be perfect. We expect Christians to be perfect. We expect once we're Christian, there'll be no suffering. There'll be no mistakes. There'll be no sin. And that's not the way it is. <laughs> and so I think this is a really powerful scene. James is an earthen vessel. He's a broken vessel. He's a weak vessel. He's a suffering vessel. And he is going to heal others because that's what Christ calls us all to be, to be earthen vessels. We're not perfect. He doesn't wait for us to be perfect to call us. He doesn't wait for us to be healed to call us, but that we are supposed to go and forward and preach and teach in our suffering, in our sinfulness, in our weakness. He is an earthen vessel. He calls Judas to the same thing. Judas, if he would have come back, if he would have had, you know, repented and if he would have asked for mercy, Judas would have been a, a earthen vessel to preach the love of Christ in the midst of his sin and suffering. But this plan is a mystery. Um, two more things about this that I think are really important. Number one, um, did you notice he says something? And I forget what, I forget what he says. Um, 
And Jesus rebukes him and says, I never want you to say that again. But before he rebukes him, he says, James, I love you, but I never want to hear you say that again. And this is such a powerful reminder to us that this is the way Jesus rebukes us. If we have thoughts, um, attacking thoughts, if we have thoughts of unworthiness, if we have thoughts of, of um, condemnation that aren't accompanied with love, they're not from the Lord, they're from the devil. The devil is the accuser. Christ does rebuke us. Christ does call us to something greater. Christ does correct us, but he does it in love. And so Jesus says, I love you, little James, but I never want you to say that again. So he rebukes him, but it comes first out of love. And that's a good lesson for parents, too, um, that your, your rebuke, your correction always should begin with love. So that is, I think, was a really important point in that scene. And the other one is that he ends by saying, you will be healed. It's only a matter of time. And he's speaking about heaven. And how many of us need to hear that? There is hope. We will be healed. It just might not happen in this life. Um, our wounds, our sufferings, our illnesses will go away. They will be washed away. Um, our wounds we may take to heaven if they're indications of the love of God, as Christ took his wounds to heaven. But they will be purified. They will be transformed. And so we all need to hear Jesus saying that to us. Yes, Barbara, you're right. It was about him being a burden. He said, I feel like a burden. And Jesus says, little James, I love you, but never say that again. Right? In a sense, he was rebuking him for having those accusing thoughts. Right? Having those accusing thoughts. My mom says that I need to get Dallas on here and ask him about this scene, redemptive suffering, and his treatment of the Blessed Mother. He is getting close to Catholic thought. Um, I agree. I've wanted to ask him about the Blessed Mother for, for quite some time. And I think a lot of times when people interview him, they want to say, you know, are you going to show, like, we're going to talk about it, but the whole idea of the siblings of Mary or the siblings of Jesus, and they want to kind of pin him in a corner to say like, what theology are you? And he's going to avoid that. We're going to talk in a future episode about um, the idea of the church and if we need the church. And so there's lots that I think he doesn't have a Catholic worldview but I do think he's getting very close with scenes like this that seem to come out of such a heart for um, theology. Have I ever heard of Joni Erickson? Is she the one that paints? Um, I think she's the one that paints. And I have because people get me confused. They, they think I spell my name like that. So that's how I, I know Joni. So, um, yes. So anyway, I think this was just such a beautiful... Um, Oh, so Christy says that Joni has a beautiful post, not me, but Joni Erickson has a beautiful post about how she felt when she saw the James scene. So well, everybody go look that up and see, because I would love to read that. So they end with Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's the answer to our suffering, right? We still bless him in our suffering. We bless him in our trials. I just think this was such a, a such a well done scene. It was really beautiful. And then we have the close. So Matthew, I think it's really subtle. He walks past his booth. I don't know if you noticed that. I only noticed it, I think, in the second or third watch. He's going home, but so much has happened. And so there's this subtle going home, walking past his booth, finding, you know, he is different. He has changed. He is new. He might not feel any different, 
Because remember, Jesus says you don't have to feel any different. But I think Matthew does. Gaius likes Matthew. I can't wait to see what happens with Gaius. Again, no spoilers. Um, and then they pray Psalm 3 together. And it's when David's fleeing from Absalom. It's really beautiful. And it's a reminder to us to pray with the Psalms. The Psalms should be our words of praise that just come on our lips. Notice that the apostles just knew this Psalm. I wondered how Matthew knew it. He's a quick learner because he didn't know that much scripture. And now he's reciting Psalm 3 from heart. But maybe he's going through the Psalms chronologically and it was early on in his lessons. But I recommend praying the Liturgy of the Hours or praying the Psalms so regularly that even if what I love about Liturgy of the Hours is that you, you, you pray a variety of Psalms and like Friday, the Psalms are very dark. They're very, um, they're the Psalms of suffering because it's Friday and we're remembering the passion. And some Fridays you might not feel like you need to pray that way. You might not feel dark. You may not feel, um, you may not be suffering but you're still praying these Psalms because someone in the church is suffering. Someone in the church is feeling this way. The Psalms are very emotive, but as you pray these Psalms over and over and over again, they become part of your thoughts and part of your prayer naturally. And so when you are in a situation, those words come to your lips that match your mood. You will, you know, pray. I know this is from Job, but blessed be the name of the Lord and suffering that will come to your, come to your mind. So I recommend praying with the Psalms so frequently that they become your language of prayer. And I think that's beautifully depicted at the end of this episode with the the apostles. So again, these episodes have just been setting the stage. If you have any questions, throw them in the chat right now. But these episodes have just been setting the stage for the, the future episodes. We'll be looking at episode three next. And they just get more and more packed. And I think there's a lot to talk about, especially as there are some things, as I mentioned, about Jesus' siblings, or do we need the church, or why is Jesus here, that we can grapple with. And the whole point of Joan's Take on the Chosen is to look at these episodes from a Catholic point of view. Not that Dallas needs to be Catholic, although I think he needs to be Catholic, but not that this this episode, you know, all these episodes need to be Catholic, although I think they should be because I think that's how things happened, and that's the truth. But um, But just to kind of give them a good you know, we need to discuss these things and we can discuss these things as Catholics. We don't have to agree every, with everything the way it's depicted in The Chosen because that's The Chosen is an artistic depiction of the scriptures. So what's more important is knowing the scriptures. What's more important is knowing what um, what the scriptures tell us about Jesus. But I think there's a lot of power in watching these scenes unfold. So I hope that all makes sense. And I enjoy being with you. I will be announcing episode three shortly, and I hope that I gave you something to think about. So we will, uh, yeah, I'll announce when episode three is coming, and this is when I'm trying to land the plane, and I don't know how to. So thanks for joining me, and I look forward to joining all of you again to talk about episode three. God bless you all. God bless.